Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. The passage for this morning is Psalm 145, if you'd like to read along with me. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your work shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Thank you, Amy, for reading this morning. I really appreciate that. What a good way to get started. My little sister had a harsh skin disease, and the Lord healed it and gave her the courage to take the treatment she needed in order to get better. The Lord saved my best friend. The Lord has given me the gift of dance, which I very much enjoy. At a church camp two years ago, I saw about a hundred kids bowing down and crying with happiness as we worshiped God together. The Lord provided new friends for me and my family when we moved. God gave me a brother and three sisters. God is healing my brother's broken arm. God saved my mom and sister during labor. My sister didn't have a heartbeat at first, and my mom wasn't able to breathe, but God protected and rescued both of them. The Lord preserved the life of my grandma and grandpa, who were in a terrible car accident a little over a year ago. The Lord has saved me. What you just heard is a list of ways that God has been good and shown his goodness to children. The the children of the upper elementary class here at Redemption's Hill last week spent some time at the end of class and they simply wrote down ways that God had been good to them, ways that they had tasted and seen his goodness in just their short little lives. They're anywhere between third and sixth grade. God has already shown his goodness to them in an abundant of ways, and this was just a snapshot that I asked for them to capture for us, to bless us in the hearing of them here this morning. Now, throughout the service today, we're going to have the opportunity to hear more of that from others in our congregation, and I thank you right now, those of you who participated as I sent out a text Uh, Kind of the several in the congregation asking for input. If I didn't get to you, I'm sorry. But that doesn't mean that you don't also have ways that you could say God has been good to you. 
TJ gave me the opportunity to prayerfully choose whatever psalm that I felt the Lord had for me to teach on. And as I prayed, the same prayer that I always pray, which is, okay, Lord, what is your message for this people for this time? I realized that there wasn't a psalm just popping into my mind, but I did know that I wanted to teach on God's goodness and his might. And so I did something that I haven't done in a long time, which is that I went and pulled out uh, a, an, an old album that is probably one of my favorite albums of all time, and it is a Shane and Shane album back whenever they wrote their own music and didn't just record other people's worship songs, um, called the Psalms album, the original one, not Psalms volume two, which is also a great album, but the original one written back when I was in college, back in the early 2000s. And Psalm 145 is one of my favorite songs that they have ever set to music. And that's a psalm that we just sang a few minutes ago. And I've really enjoyed that rendition. And as I heard that song that Shane and Sane so beautifully recorded, sung, it became apparent to me, this is where the Lord has us this morning. So I believe that if we are open, if our hearts and our ears are open that the Lord does have something in this for us today that can help us in our everyday lives and that will bring pleasure and joy to the heart of the Father at the same time. When I was a young man in youth group growing up, we had a saying that probably many of you have heard before, and it goes like this. It says, he is good all the time, and all the time he is good. How many of you guys in here heard that in some form growing up, right? It was kind of a mantra that some of us have, a, a catchphrase. And, and in part, we meant it, but in part, it was also kind of just like a way to show you were in the club, right? If I come up to you and say, he is good all the time, and you respond with all the time, he is good, then I know you're one of my kind. I know that you belong to sort of some of the similar circles that I do. So then I got to college, and I started to face a little bit of adversity. I, I actually, for the first couple of years in college, didn't really take my walk with the Lord very seriously at all. And... Then all of a sudden, I met a wonderful group of people that reintroduced me to the goodness of God. And some of them said this same phrase, he is good all the time and all the time he is good. And as I heard it in that context, and as I was growing deeper in my own walk with the Lord, that phrase started to take on a slightly different meaning than it had before. It wasn't so much, oh, hey, you're in the same club as me, but it was a declaration that God is good all the time. And it, became, it began to become part of what I actually believed and what I actually wanted to hold to faithfully every day. It was also in this season that I became painfully aware of how broken I was and how much I needed God's salvation and how much Jesus' salvation was at the very center of him showing his goodness to us, his patience, his mercy, his faithfulness, his grace in comparison to my unfaithfulness, my sin, my brokenness were infinitely distant from one another. And in view of this, his goodness seemed bigger and more real and tangible than ever before. Then I started to learn about his holiness and his righteousness, his majesty, his authority, his justice, his kindness, and all these things began to build on top of his goodness. And then something happened to me. I became hyper-focused on one dimension of God. And that was God's sovereignty. And so for the next three, four, five years, I just became so focused on all of these theological arguments on the finer points of doctrine. And something sad happened to me. So I began to study Arminianism and Calvinism and sola everything. 
slowly but surely, the goodness of God began to take a back seat and some of those finer details began to take precedence in my mind. In fact, at that point, I might have said that someone who used the phrase, he is good all the time and all the time he is good, was maybe slightly simple. Maybe that, that didn't even fully capture it and uh, uh, was, you know, just, just maybe a little bit of youthful thinking, not refined enough. Then I got married and began to have children and began to have real life, real world struggles, wondering where finances were going to come from and sicknesses started to take hold. People I knew started to face real life challenges. And I realized that these finer points of theology, these doctrines that I had made my entire walk with the Lord about had very little power at all and very little use at all to help me in those times. And it wasn't until I started focusing again on the goodness of God that I realized that's where my hope is. Our hope is in the goodness of God. He is good all the time and, and all the time he is good. This is no small thing. Even in my suffering, he is good. It's not just a simple thought. So our text for the day, Psalm 145, speaks of God's goodness. It is David's final psalm of the 150 psalms that are recorded in the Psalter. Not all of those are from David, but this is the final one that he wrote. It is, in fact, at the end of his life, which is appropriate, being that it's towards the end of the Psalms. Not all of them go in chronological order, but this one does. It's his last one, and it is, in fact, the last one of his life that we know of. One thing is abundantly clear from this Psalm. David is really excited about both the power and the goodness of God, and the rest of us should be as a matter of fact, in the 21 verses of this psalm, we find 19 different ways that David talks about the act of worshiping God for his power and goodness out loud. We see action words all over the place. We see things like sing, bless, make known, commend, meditate on, speak, pour forth, declare, and extol. And in some of these cases, David is saying he will be the one taking action. But in others, he's saying that you and I, other saints, should be the ones taking these actions. But in every case, we are worshiping and praising God for his wonders and his goodness. It seems that the praise and worship of God is something that is very important to David. And it's something that should be very important to us. Let's consider David for just a moment. Who is David? Who is David? Now, of course, many of you in here are already very familiar with David. You've heard the story since you were little. You've done your own Bible study, and you know a lot about him and his story already. But others in here may be less familiar. So let's just take a moment and do a brief recap of David and who he was he was the youngest son of a man named Jesse. Now, Jesse was not a king. We actually don't know a ton about who Jesse was, but we do know he was not a king. He was probably a person of some importance. But the current king of Israel, and, and just for context, this is taking place in about 1,000-ish B.C., about 1,000 years before, maybe 900 before Jesus comes on the scene. Um, the current king at that time was a man named Saul. And Saul started off good, but then turned away from God. And so God said, I'm taking the kingdom away from you. I'm taking the throne away from you, and I'm going to give it to the son of a shepherd. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give it to the youngest son of a shepherd, just a little shepherd boy named David. 
Now, at first glance, David may seem hard for us to relate to. On paper, he seems to be giving a blessing and a gift that most of us would dream of having. It's kind of a real-life Cinderella story, right? One day, he's out working with sheep in a field. He just happened to be a musician, so he's singing them songs too, like to go to sleep, I guess. I'm not sure, to comfort them. Next thing he knows, a prophet shows up at his door, goes through all of his older brothers, says, no, none of them are really supposed to be king. This little guy here is. That's the ultimate Cinderella story, and it makes it kind of hard for some of us maybe to, to relate with them. I mean, surely his life was filled with luxury and without much discomfort or suffering from that point forward, but of course nothing could be further from the truth. David faced many trials as king, and he suffered a great deal, but even before he would become king, he would go through many of those trials and suffering. As a matter of fact, that guy Saul, the king I was talking about, he chased David all over Israel in attempts to kill him. And David had done nothing to deserve it. And it's during this season that David writes many of the psalms that we have throughout the psalms. And they're psalms of great suffering, yet they're filled with hope. One such psalm is Psalm 31. And in that, David begins the psalm earlier on in the psalm, like verse 10, he says, My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Yet just a few verses later, the tune changes and he says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of the children of mankind and the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. He, or be strong and let your, pride, your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. It would seem that for David, the presence of suffering did not change the truth of God's goodness. God remained good even whenever David could not feel it, even whenever his strength failed, and even whenever his bones wasted away. So the, the, the things that he's telling us now in Psalm 145 about praising his name every day, that the goodness of, of him should be on our lips and that we should extol his name and that we should commend the kingdom to one another. That's not done out of a place of a person that we cannot relate to. That a person that is living some sort of glorious, luxurious life without any troubles. That's done in the context of a man who had experienced many, many sorrows and much suffering throughout his life. And honestly, quite honestly, towards the end of his life, David didn't have it real well. If you go back and you study his life, he literally goes to war with one of his sons. Can you imagine that? I've been angry at Zoe before, but never so much as to go to take up arms against her and to go to war with her. I mean, this kingdom that, that he had built, he's seeing his son and, and the rest of the kings in his line, and he's going, oh man, I don't know, Lord. The end of his life wasn't great, and yet still, towards it, he's singing and telling us all to extol God for his goodness. And I think that's probably our first takeaway for today. Maybe another way to think about it is that David had learned through walking with God for a lifetime that God's goodness was not tethered to our present feelings or circumstances. He is good all the time. And all the time, he is good. He's good when I feel good, and he's good when I feel lousy. Now, this kind of goodness is deserving of praise. Throughout this psalm and in many other Davidic psalms, there is a general 
expectation and exhortation to the saints or the peoples to bless the name of the Lord. We see it in this psalm in verse 10. Psalm 145, David commands, really, us, all your saints shall bless your name. All your saints will, they should, it's right. The expectation is that in light of God's goodness, his people will praise his name. It is fitting. Let's ask why. Why is it fitting for us to praise his name and his goodness? I can think of two reasons mainly. And these are kind of our two big points for today. If you were to say, okay, God is good, but why is it important for me to sing or extol or praise his name or to remember his goodness? Why is it important? Here's the two reasons why. The first reason is this. God takes pleasure in the sound of our worship. That's not a small thing. What were we made for? What's the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Because God enjoys it. <laughs> you know, there's two parts to that saying. Glorify God, enjoy him forever. Enjoy him forever is for us. Glorify God is for him. Part of this whole deal, the reason we pursue our faith, the reason we practice our faith, it's not just for the benefits we gain from it. God actually delights in it. He actually takes pleasure in it. Now, I want to be careful here because... I could be misunderstood. But here's what I mean. I don't want to let the transcendence of God, the fact that he's above all time and all creation, trick me into thinking that he's not capable of feeling emotions such as joy. Repeatedly throughout the scriptures, we see God being pleased with or taking joy in or having anger or compassion or feeling jealous. For instance, in Deuteronomy 9, Moses is telling a story to the people of Israel about how he went up to a mountain and he was pleading. He had to plea with God because God was so angry with the Israelites because they had done what they had done repeatedly, which was that God had shown his faithfulness and they had time and time again shown their unfaithfulness. He had been good, he had provided, and they did not believe. They walked in opposition to him, even in spite of that. And God is so angry, it says. And anger, last time I checked, was an emotion. God is so angry, it says, that he wished to completely destroy them. And in that story, Moses pleads with God and God's anger goes from here to here. It quenches. So God does feel this emotion of anger and that anger is real, right? Let's look at maybe a more pleasant one in Zephaniah 3.17 where God feels joy, where God feels pleasure. He says this, the Lord your God is in your midst. This is Zephaniah speaking to the Israelites later on. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you He will exalt over you with loud or some translations say joyful singing. Let's look at Jesus. I mean, obviously, when Jesus was human and on earth, he felt emotions. If he didn't, he would have been something other than human. So, of course, he felt emotions when he was on earth. But he even speaks of a time when he will no longer be on earth and he, in John 15. And he speaks of it like this. When I go to be back with the Father, after that event happens, when I'm no longer human, when I'm no longer on earth, when I've been made perfect and when I'm existing with the Father, I will take joy in you if you keep my commands. I will feel 
pleasure. I think all of these biblical examples have to lead us to the conclusion that God does experience true and honest emotion. Now, of course, his feelings, they're not subject to error, such as ours are, but he does feel joy, and it's real. And what's more, we're capable of producing that joy in him through our worship and praise. We should be concerned with his delight. We have the ability to please him, and our worship and our praise is one such means by which we can do this. So why should we particularly praise him for his goodness? Is, is he somehow more proud of his goodness than he is his justice or his righteousness or his holiness? Is he somehow more proud of the fact that he is good than the fact that he is the arbiter of all truth and the, and the, and the founder of all truth, that he's omniscient, that he's all-powerful? Is he somehow more proud of that fact? I would be really getting into bad waters if I tried to make a case for that from the scriptures because I don't even think that's true. So I'm not going to. But I am going to suggest that there is another more practical reason why it's good and maybe even better for us to worship him for his goodness often, frequently. And that has more to do with our own state and our own soul's and this comes to our second reason, another reason why it is good for us to worship God for his goodness is that our faith grows. Our faith grows when we remember his goodness. So what do I mean by this? When you and I consistently worship God for his goodness, we are reminded that he is good. And he's very good at that. It's easy to forget that fact. It's easy to forget the fact that God is good when we're in the doldrums, when we're in the midst of our suffering and our self-pity and our sadness, when all we can see is bad in the world. It's easy to forget that God is good. But what's interesting to me is this. When I stop and take time to praise God for his goodness in both the high times and the low times, I'm quicker to remember that he is good in those low spots. Why is that? By remembering his goodness, we start to build an arsenal or collect ammunition, if you want to think of it that way, in order to be able to fight the war of faith in our lives. Now, this isn't some sort of self-help message, okay? I'm not trying to preach that somehow we can just kind of manifest our positive thoughts into being. That kind of thinking is closer to the occult than it is to any sort of Christian thought. So don't hear me saying that. Quite frankly, what I'm saying is a lot less spiritual to that, than that and a lot more practical. It, this kind of just makes sense at, at, at a core level. When I need to be convinced of something I like, to have multiple pieces of evidence that point to the fact that I should be convinced. Think of it this way. I've got a few examples for you. If I'm going to pick up if I'm going to pick a place to eat, if Amanda and I are going to pick a place to eat, uh, we're in a new city, and I don't know anybody who's been there before, and we're looking for maybe a local restaurant, because we kind of like that. We don't, we don't do the fast food chain things a lot, especially if it's on a trip or a vacation. We'd really love to experience local cuisine. So we go to Google Reviews, and we look at Google Reviews, and you know, we kind of, okay, 4.6 and below is already out. You don't, you don't make the cut. All right, 4.7 and above, we're, we're there. Okay, 4.7 above, we're in. Okay, great. So 4.7 above, that narrows it down quite a bit. We've got a lot of 4.7s. All right, we've got this one here that says five. That's great, but it only has like three reviews. All right. Well, it's good that those three people liked it, but here we got a 4.9, but it has like 400 reviews. Yeah, okay. There's, there's, there's good evidence here that I'm going to like this place because a lot of other people have testified that this is a wonderful place to eat. If I'm going to invest in a stock, right, I kind of start to do a little bit of research on it at first. I kind of look at its history or I look at the history of other stocks that are like it. How have they performed? What are the current circumstances? What, what, what evidence do I have that this stock is going to be a good return on my investment and as I see the places it has done well and it has done good in the past and I compare it to my time now, I'm better prepared to make a decision whether I should invest in this stock or not. 
or kids, kids, if, uh, if you're going to go to a movie, right, you're probably going to get excited if it's made by Disney. If you're going to play with a new Lego set, you're going to be really excited. Or, or if you're going to, if you're going to uh, uh, get pizza, right? If you're going to play a video game that has Mario in it, you're, you're excited just from the fact that it has these things going for it. You've had pizza before. You liked it. You've played Mario games before. You liked it. Generally speaking, when Disney releases a movie, you like it. Because of the good experiences you've had with it in the past, you have confidence that the future experiences you have with it will also be good, right? This isn't, this, this isn't an overly complicated principle, and it's one that actually holds true when it comes to our faith. When we consistently remember the goodness of God, what he has done, how he treats us with kindness and gentleness, and how he is wholly faithful, how he is capable of miraculous works that we can't dream of, we are feeding the stomach of our faith. We're taking it to the gym. We're getting it pumped. We're watering it. We're giving it plenty of sun. And as a result, it grows and it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger and then when we are faced with the tough moments where we need faith in God's goodness and it's scary and the circumstances are overwhelming, we will be able to rely on the goodness of God and take courage because our faith has grown strong through our repeated good habit of recalling God's goodness. This is one of the major reasons why we should make preaching ourselves the gospel every day, a daily, a daily habit, right? It should be something we do every day because Satan will tempt you to despair at some point. The doubts will come. And they can come from a number of places. But when we have preached the gospel to ourselves through songs, through bringing in church like this and hearing it preached to us, through reading the scriptures through visiting with other believers and talking about the gospel work that God has done by hearing testimony over and over again, by reciting our own story to ourselves, we remember that we are in fact his, we are in fact Satan. It doesn't matter what Satan says. He has been good to us in that way. And speaking of the gospel, what better example do we have of the goodness and kindness and power of God than it? And David tells us in the psalm, Psalm 145, that the Lord is near to all who call upon him. He hears their cry and he saves them. Now, obviously, for David, salvation meant something slightly different than it means for us, probably. He was literally talking about being saved out of a cave when he was being chased around. That was the experience he had had of God's goodness but even he had a faith that in the afterlife, whenever he passed, whenever he went to the grave, that it would be the Lord's goodness that would save him and not his own because he knew that he was not good enough to save himself and that the Lord favored him for no reason other than the Lord favored him. And that produced in him a faith and a quality that we should have ourselves God saved us. It was costly. It was costly. It cost him everything, and we gained everything from it. It's a perfect display of his might and mercy, his goodness and his power. He rescued us. He became a prisoner of sin and death for a time so that you and I could become a citizen of heaven in righteousness for eternity. And we could spend the rest of our lives simply reveling in this fact and praising God for this fact, and it would be good for us to do so. There's nothing bigger than that. But here's the wild thing. That's not where he stops. It's not like God said, I'm going to never bless you with anything else, but I am going to you know, forgive your sins. That would be good enough if he had. But he didn't only do that. He does so much more. And we should remember it. 
I'd like for us to consider a few of the lines in this psalm and see if we can try to translate them into our day-to-day lives. You'll notice that throughout the psalm, David speaks of God's goodness not simply as an idea or a personality trait, but rather as a core attribute that dictates the way that God, the way that we experience him in our day-to-day lives. That is to say, he not only is good, but he acts good. Do you understand that? It's not that God just is good in like this ethereal sense. He actually acts good toward us. That's how we know he's good. He blesses us with his good works, his wonders, his deeds. Now, some of these are miracles that happen to us maybe once in our lives. And we all probably have something huge like that that we could point to where you just look at it and you go, there is no explanation. There's no scientific explanation There's no explanation. There's no psychological explanation that I can think. There's no explanation at all. It's just a miracle. But the truth of the matter is we probably don't experience those very frequently. They wouldn't seem as miraculous if we did. However, God's not only good to us through big miracles. He's good to us in every moment of the day. Seemingly small things that have less frills and sadly go unnoticed. Of course, he heals people from cancer. Of course, he parts seas and topples nations. Of course, he does things that nature and science can't explain. But he also puts food on our tables, right? Through very seemingly normal means. I work a job. I get paid. I go to the store. I buy food. My family eats. It can be really easy for me to think that that's something I've done. Do you realize that's God's goodness to you? It's God's kindness? Did you work hard for your job? Probably. That's not to say, though, that you are putting that food on the table. He does. He provides. The heart beats in your chest and in my chest. Our entire lives, from the moment that it starts beating in the womb of our mom till the day we draw our last breath, it pumps. If you're running, it pumps like that. And if you're just kind of at rest, it pumps maybe like that. But it never stops. Seemingly very normal. And God keeps it going because he is good to us. So, how can we make a habit, a practice, a discipline of remembering his good works in our lives so that he takes pleasure and so that we can bolster our faith and confidence and joy in him? And there are many ways we can do this, but I wanted to give you just a few practical ones to take away. Now, these are things that have worked for me. These are things that that I've seen in other people's lives, and and I, I really believe that they're things that can help you and me. And so these are, these are suggestions. These are gifts that if you have already started practicing them, I would just encourage you, go for it. Keep going. If you haven't, take them. They're free. I'm offering them up. What if we started looking at our traditions and our holidays and just our weekly patterns as opportunities to praise and worship with our families that we live with. Some of us probably already do this. But, uh, you know, a few weeks ago, we had a family movie night, which we do fairly regularly. And uh, it had been close to a full decade since I had watched The Prince of Egypt. Uh, Who in here remembers that movie from when we were kids? Most of us were kids. Some of you were probably adults. Some of you weren't alive. Um, But The Prince of Egypt, 1998, right? Uh, The guy who plays Voldemort in the Harry Potter movies is the guy who plays Pharaoh. Very fitting, right? The guy who plays Iceman in Top Gun is the guy who plays Moses. Also very fitting, I think. He also plays Batman now that I think of it. See, very fitting. I love the music in that movie. Oh, I love it. So I was jazzed. I was excited to show it to the kids, right? Eleanor's never seen it. Zoe was really little when she saw it. So we're watching it together. And... uh, 
you know, I'm singing the music and I'm, we're, we're coming along. And then we get to the part where the death angel comes. And they're taking the blood of the lamb. They're putting it up on the doorposts and the death angel comes and they have this unbelievable score that Hans Zimmer does and it just brings chills to you. And of course you see people dying and you see the death angel going up to doors and you see him passing over. And then you see the sadness and the grief from all the people. And Pharaoh says, go, get out of here. And the people leave and God delivers his people from 400 years of slavery. And in that moment, as an adult, I'm going, oh my gosh, wow, God is so good. He's so good. And they're marching out of Egypt and they're, they're celebrating and they're dancing. And that's when the, you can do miracles, the Whitney Houston song comes on. Like, yeah, you know, and oh, and they're going. And then all of a sudden there's a, there's a, there's a ram's horn that blows and you see Pharaoh and his chariots come up over a hill and they're just massive and there's this group of people and kids and old women and children and, and they're just defenseless. And they look in front of them and oh my gosh, they've got nowhere to go because there's a massive sea. What are we going to do? God, you've led us out here to die. What, what, what did you do this for? And then, and then all of a sudden, boom, a pillar of fire in front of Pharaoh and Moses with this staff, you will perform my wonders right into the sea and sea parts and the people cross. And as, and as Pharaoh and his army start to, to chase them, the seas come back together. I know that's not exactly the way it happened in the Bible, but it made for a heck of a moment in a movie, right? And it captured the essence. And you look at that and you say, wow, what a great movie, what a great story. Do you realize every single year for the past, I don't know, 4,000 years, the Jewish people have kept a week holy, and there is a night every single year called the Seder meal in Passover where they celebrate that story. And a child asks, as they're sitting around the table and they've got all these traditional elements, a child asks, why do we gather here tonight? One of the elders of the family commends God's goodness from one generation to the next. And he tells them the story of the Passover, of how God delivered his people out of Egypt. He recounts God's goodness and the faith of that child and the faith of everyone in the room is built and God receives glory for the good works that he did almost 4,000 years ago. Oh, man, when you think of that, how powerful could our Christmases be? When we celebrate the fact that Jesus sent, or God sent a little baby, Jesus, to save us. That this gift that we had been waiting on, our salvation for eternity, came. Oh, that we would use Christmas Eve to remember that. What about Easter? The day that Jesus rose from the grave. Wow, how about we commend that good work one to another? What about Lent? What about, the, what about uh, you know, Pentecost? What about Palm Sunday? What about all of these opportunities we have? Or heck, what about a random Wednesday night? Whenever I can surely think of something God has done good in the last couple days that I should share with my family... Oh, that we would do that. If you're not already doing that, I would just recommend you start. If you are, man, keep it up. You have no idea what that's doing for your soul. Maybe you do, and maybe that's why you continue to do it. You know, you can worship throughout the week as well. Worship isn't contained to this time in this space. I would really encourage you, download some songs, make a playlist. Make a playlist about how God has been good and how his goodness is and sing it. Say it out loud throughout the week when you're by yourself in your car, maybe around your family and friends. Use that gift of music throughout the week. Or perhaps some of you would be better at journaling and rereading 
your journals, which is something that my wife is incredible at. It helps us to remember the small day-to-day things that God has done in our lives. You know, she's been breaking out some of her journals from 10, 15 years ago recently, and we got some really cool things that we can point to, some really big events that we remember. And we go back, and she reads what she wrote about them, and we're encouraged. But then she'll stumble upon a random Tuesday in the middle of August in 2008, where God was good to her by letting her have a peaceful day out in the park and experiencing his presence through nature. And that's so good for our soul too. And it's recorded because she took the time and the discipline to write it down then so that we could go back now and remember it now and share it one with another. And God could receive glory for that and we could be grown. So if these are helpful for you, I would just say, take them. Make them your own. Start doing them. You're going to grow. As we conclude today, I was trying to think of how to wrap this all up, how to tie it all back together. TJ and I were kind of going through this part of the message, and uh, he took the liberty of, of jotting down two paragraphs. And I read them, and I said, TJ, I can't do any better than that. Can I just steal them? and put them in my message. He said, yeah. So I'm just going to read to you exactly what TJ wrote after having kind of read through this because I think it just captures everything. We often tend to relegate God's goodness to how we feel in the moment. It's like gravity, that what we go back, that what we go back to unless we actively fight against it. This pattern, like a telephoto lens, zooms in too far And we can't see the entire landscape of our life or creation, for that matter. When we zoom in too close to our immediate circumstances, situation, or feeling, we lose all perspective of the greater reality. We, in this, can't see the forest through the trees, and we get lost this way. Our perspective becomes shrunken, limited, and jaded, which causes a tension between us and God that results in us withholding the worship that is due to his glorious name. But David says worship out loud 19 different ways in this text. This isn't ethereal, assumed, or fuzzy. It's concrete. Worship, sing, extol, shout, bless. Those are all tangible forms of worship. When we do those things and remember who God is with our bodies and our souls through external forms of worship, we are thereby zooming out the lens of our immediate circumstances and onto the greater realities of our lives and God's work. This act of of zooming out causes us to see God for his entire body of work and not just a small snapshot of what we feel in a still broken world. If we do that, we'll give God worship, the worship he deserves at all times, and it will be an anchor to our soul in the storms of life. This has a double effect. It stabilizes us, and it gives God what he is due. So with the rest of our time today, we're going to extol God and his deeds. Our children are with us today. The upper kids are. And our, children, our other children will be joining us during worship. And I'm going to read out loud through the time of worship some of the things you guys sent me this week. And through that act, we will be commending to another generation God's goodness. They will get to hear of his goodness. And we will get to hear and remember the things he's done He will receive worship, and we will be blessed. And then we're going to take communion in the middle of that. And I want for you guys to think about communion slightly different this morning. Perhaps you always think of it this way. That's good. I don't always, and and I I probably need to. The band's going to come up. They're going to play. And as we take worship, or as we take communion in worship, we're going to think about this text that we always do, but we're going to think about it differently. For I received from the Lord 
what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on that night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this, and as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Now, did you catch that? Do this in remembrance of me. If I'm honest, most of the time when I take communion, I'm thinking about my sin. I'm thinking about the sins that I committed and how I need to repent of them. I'm asking God to forgive me for them. And I'm taking communion almost more as a means by saying, God, I'm accepting your forgiveness. God, I'm, I'm accepting the, the, the blood that you spilled on the cross for my sins. But today I just want us to turn that focus slightly. Let's just turn it and just remember Jesus. Let's just remember what he's done in his goodness. Let's leave just a little bit less focused on ourselves this morning as we take communion. And let's do it in remembrance of him. So, Ben, let's go ahead and come back up here. We're going to worship as normal. And as we do, we're just going to pause in between songs. And I'm going to read some of these. So prepare your hearts, prepare your minds, prepare your souls. And let's pray together. Father God, you are good. You are so, so, so good. You are so holy, God. You have done so much that proves to us you are good. And Father, we ask for forgiveness in the times that we forget that. We ask for mercy, God. We also ask for strength that we might remember these in our moments of weakness, that we may be able to focus on who you are, on your goodness, God, and that you may receive glory that you may take pleasure and delight in it, Lord Jesus, and that our faith may grow as we recount the goodness. Would you do that here this, today? Would you be glorified? And would you strengthen our faith? Amen.